0: But if you have a container view, a Newton-like view, where time is just comes with the external stimuli, but the brain itself has no inner time, then of course you say, not of what you're doing is wrong. Depression is for me a speed disturbance. You are too slow. Mm. For us, it's much more difficult to perceive and become conscious of the heartbeat when compared to the breathing. So that tells you a little bit about the timescales of your consciousness.
1: Hi everyone, this is Axelie, and you just heard the voice of Georg Notov. Georg is a philosopher, neuroscientist and psychiatrist, and leads the Mind, Brain and Imaging Neuroethics Unit at the Royal Institute of Mental Health in Ottawa, Canada. So there are two events that really motivated me to do this podcast, and one of those events was about a year and a half ago when I listened to Georg Notov's talk about spatial temporal neuroscience, and it just hooked my interest in the concept of time. So I'm super excited to have him as my first guest, and in case you were curious, the other thing that motivated the podcast was this really long discussion I had with my friends Ricardo and Charlie as we were on a hike, and we were disagreeing about whether spiders perceive time as slower or quicker than us. Anyway, back to the podcast. So the two main themes of this episode are the self and time. And for the self, Georg and I discuss resting state or spontaneous activity which is activity to the brain when we are thinking about ourselves or are engaging in mental phenomena such as mind wandering. And here we also get into the default mode network, which you might have heard about. And on the topic of time, there's plenty. So we discuss how neuroscientists should not implicitly subscribe to a container view of time, following Isaac Newton, but instead consider how our brain constructs its own inner time. We get onto one of Georg's central ideas, which is that the brain matches the spatial-temporal statistics of its world. For example, when we listen to music, our brain's temporal statistics would align with the rhythm of a song. And we also get into some physics territory by talking about scale-free dynamics and pink noise. And a central theme of the podcast, we get into time perception and how that might be impaired in conditions such as depression or mania. And there's lots of other stuff too, such as evolution, our heart rate, and whales. And at the end, Georg tells us a bit about the difficulties of having an interdisciplinary career trajectory. And I ask him where spatiotemporal neuroscience will be in 10 years. I hope you'll enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. And if you want to jump ahead to any specific questions, there are timestamps in the description, as well as links to all the papers and books we talk about. Hi, Georg. It's great to have you here. When did you first get interested in the concept of time?
0: Uh, that's a good question. I mean, of course, when you're interested in physics, time is always there. It's a big issue, whether it's a block time a la Einstein or the dynamic time a la uh, Lee Smolin, for instance. So I read those books. But very concrete in my research, I became really interested in time and I said, okay, what is the brain about? when I uh, became clear that I need to develop a model, a new model or theory of brain activity, not just brain function, uh, brain activity, a much more basic level, and I said, yeah, how can we characterize activity? What is encoded in activity? And that led me to time, because I strongly believe that the brain is a temple encoder. It encodes time, that's the way it interfaces uh, and interacts with the environmental context and with the body through time temple stochastics.
1: Okay. Dynamic time, uh, Liesmonen, if I get the name right, I've, I've never heard uh, of them. Wh- what is this about?
0: So, you know, there's, there's a big discussion whether uh, time is static or it's like a block universe that basically goes to uh, Einstein and the metaphysics of philosophy of time. These are the two main view, either uh, time is a block universe and more static, and that's basically a Newtonian like also, but then, however, there's also a view of the dynamic time historically that goes back to Leibniz. So Leibniz was a proponent that time is continuously flowing and there is no real past or future. It's just a continuous present. Yeah, uh, when you go back into ancient Greek philosophy, Heraclitus, you never step into the same river twice. That's dynamic time, <clears throat> and in physics, is always an oscillation between these more static, more dynamic. And Lee Smolin was one of the uh, people who advocated the uh, uh, dynamic time. And there's also, oh God, uh, Rovelin, an Italian guy who also proposed this. And currently the pendulum is taught the dynamic time. And as you can already see how emphatic I am about dynamic time, I'm still proponent about that because I think the brain constructs its own flow or river of time. And that's a dynamic.
1: Yeah, the Heraclitus brain river of time. Yes, the other thing we'll talk about in this episode a lot and we'll kind of start off with that is the self. When did you get interested in the self?
0: Yeah, that's um, besides, of course, the personal interest in the self. For me, the self is not just one separate function among others. So, in current cognitive neuroscience, you have self, you have attention, you have executive functions, you have perception, sensory, and so on. For me, the self is much more basic. It's a basic subjectivity. It recruiting Thomas Nagel uh, 1974, what is it like to be bad? Is the point of view. It anchors us in the world. It creates, constitutes our point of view. So for me, self is basically equivalent with the basic subjectivity. Where and how does subjectivity come from? That was really my 2004 paper, which we wrote about the self and cortical midline structures. And that was basically about subjectivity. And basically, my whole interest in neuroscience is just about subjectivity. And that's the self. When you read the opening of my website, that's basically what it is. When I speak of brain-mind, I mean
1: subjectivity. In a second, we'll get to cortical midline structures. But I think sort of a good historical starting point is the idea of spontaneous activity in the brain. And historically, neuroscientists didn't really care about it that much. I think they had these FMI block designs where uh, stimuli were presented to participants and then in between there was sort of a, a break where they were just uh, measuring this resting state, spontaneous activity, and I guess it was just a, in a way the contrast to the stimuli uh neuroscience didn't really care about that. Uh, when did they start caring about it and why? Yeah,
0: very good question. So first, uh, the history of neuroscience is relatively short compared to the one of physics, but still, there were always some people Let's say more at the fringes of neuroscience, who emphasized the spontaneous activity. For instance, Hans Berger, the inventor of the EEG, was one, uh, Simon Bishop, Visual, and Carl Lashley, earlier authors, but they were sort of not really, they were more at the fringes. And then it really came, and as you said, the early days of fMRI, it was invented at the beginning of the 90s. And I still remember that I was standing there at the clinic and we did some movements and we saw the bold. Uh, oscillating with the movements. I mean, it was just wonder, yeah? I was fascinated. I still remember that. And I'm still as fascinated when I see all that. And who really bought it for the forefront, I must say, was for me, Marcus Reckler in the 2001 paper about the default mode network. And this is very important. So I spoke with him personally. This paper was for him about the baseline of the brain. Default means baseline, reference. Yeah, it's like an internal reference. And then 2003, Michael Fox said, okay, this is a default mode network. And then basically the default state, the baseline state was forgotten and it was commuted, uh, transferred into the default mode network. And then everybody was wondering, what on earth is default mode network doing? But for me, the way I read that paper was really for me, this is the baseline of the brain and this spontaneous activity provides a baseline, the default. So for me, this paper, 2001, was an absolute eye-opener. And that's a baseline. And in our uh, 2004, the self-paper, I said, okay, maybe the the self is the psychological baseline, the basic subjectivity. So he provides a physiological baseline. And we just recently, 2022, we said, okay, there's a baseline model of cognition, and the baseline default mode now probably the whole brain exhibits spontaneous activity, not just default mode network. And he characterized it in, physio, in metabolic energetic terms, uh, the physiological baseline of the brain. And the DMN shows a particular high level of uh, metabolism. That's why he assumed it's a baseline. But nowadays, it's clear it's a whole brain shows spontaneous activity. And that was for me really an eye-opener because then I said, okay, then I need to think not the brain from the view of the task-evoked activity, from the outside and map it onto the inside of the brain. But I need to see the outside in terms of the inside of the brain, Buzaki's Mm inside-outside. Yeah, so for me, the spontaneous activity was an eye-opener. And then we said, okay, maybe we can link it. uh, It structures psychological functions. And what is this baseline activity itself, the spontaneous activity? Then we found the rest self-overlap. Maybe the baseline of the brain psychologically is yourself.
1: Yeah. You just mentioned Uri Buzaki and he and you probably agree that what evolution selects at the end of the day is behavior. So how does the spontaneous activity contribute to that? Why is it important for evolution? The big question. I don't know what Marcus Reckler would say to that, but
0: see, you, you said a very interesting thing. Evolution selects behavior. Yes. But that's just the surface. What evolution really selects and makes possible behavior is adaptivity. The better you adapt, the better you can behave and navigate freely within the world. And I just, I mean, just recently we were here in Canada, you you, you do a lot of hiking uh, because such beautiful landscape and we have a national park just right across here, the, uh, the river in Ottawa. And we saw these snakes. I mean, unbelievable. The colors are green, you can barely see them because they're so well adapted. And for me, the spontaneous activity is as strange as it sounds, it's inside the brain, but it provides the interface with the environment. What I mean by interface with the environment is not just the single stimulus, it's the, stoch- the stochastics of the input. Yeah, it's, it's a temple stochastics of your input. Let's say you listen to music. You listen to music, and you synchronize the phase onset, the timing and the phase angle of your ongoing phase-related fluctuations in the brain with the fluctuations in the music. That's a temple stochastic, and your brain seems to encode that stochastics. And the better you can synchronize slash entrainment, Peter Lakatos, intertrial phase coherence, the better you can entrain, the better you can synchronize, and the better you feel the groove of the music. So you become part of the music and that makes your consciousness. So you perceive yourself as part of the music. Ask musicians. They feel the groove. They completely align, adapt to the music Um, Surfer, She or he adapts her or her movement dynamics to the dynamics of the wave. And the better that alignment is possible, the better you feel the groove of the music. Uh, Sorry, the wave in this case. Yeah, so for me, the spontaneous activity, and we're now starting to provide some empirical flesh to the bones uh, here, that we really look, that's your interface, your global signal is very important for the encoding of temple stochastics, of movies, uh, of continuous uh music narrative story. Even when you listen to me, I know you will not see my picture here, but if you were seeing my picture and you will see I do a lot of gesturing, I do a lot of movements, <clears throat> Uh, because that's basically the manifestation, probably, of my thinking. And you will try to encode the dynamics of my movements. And by that, you try to get an idea of what this not of tries to say desperately.
1: Yeah, um, we will get back to the, the spatial-temporal matching later. But maybe for people who are not so familiar with the default mode network, DMN, the cortical midline structure, CMS, could you tell us a bit about these structures and how they relate to the self? Um, and you have done a lot of research on this, so I'm sure you could talk for ages. <laughs> okay,
0: yeah. So default mode network, as I said, it it goes back. So Regler originally 2001 in the paper described a default mode state or reference or baseline, and then that was the regions particular in the cortical midline structures, anterior cingulate, posterior cingulate. Uh, then later the medial temple. Uh, um, Lobe was added, inferior parietal, bilateral inferior parietal regions, and he described that as a default mode state. Then at the same time, sort of this concept of functional connectivity was developed, and then Fox 2003 said, okay, these regions shown high intrinsic functional connectivity among them. So I call this default mode network. So that basically, and then uh, Reckler himself in the paper later 2015, he argues, and as I said in, in personal conversations, he said, No, this was not my idea to create a separate network. My idea was really to find the baseline uh, state uh, of the state. And this, these regions show a strong task related deactivation, task unspecific. And from that, inferred that he said, because they remain task unspecific, that basically provides the default or baseline of the brain. Um <clears throat> that was basically the idea. So and then the cortical midline structures are one can say one core part of the default mode network and USANA two thousand fourteen then distinguish three parts within the default mode network, uh the medial temple, the midline, and the uh, uh dorsomedial. But the core of the default mode network are really these cortical midline structures. Now, you ask about evolution. These cortical midline structures are basically the cortical extension of the subcortical limbic system. When you look at the cytoarchitectonic features, Nüvenhuis did some fantastic work there, uh, subcortical and cortical is basically extension of the pregenual anterior cingulate cortex and then the posterior cingulate cortex are basically the limbic extension of the cortical level. Why do I say that? Because the limbic system, uh, mainly subcortically defined usually, is uh, evolutionary, quite an old archaic system, which possesses a lot of interoceptive, intero-exoceptive coupling. And that's probably an extension on the cortical level and we tested, for instance, the insula also belongs to this limbic system and we indeed tested that they show coactivation uh, in a paper in 2011. And then. There were a lot of studies on the self, uh, typically where you see, let's say, you present adjectives, trade adjectives related to your own person or to your other person. For instance, I can show you, or you have pictures. I show you a a picture of Ottawa in winter, minus 40 in snowstorms. So for you, you live on the island in Britain there, so it's probably not self-related because uh, it's rather strange to you. For me, it's highly self-related because I have to survive in those conditions. So, and when you compare these kind of stimuli, you see a lot of cortical midline structures activity, and that was associated with the self-referential processing. And that's why we assigned a particular role to the cortical midline structure for the self cell.
1: Yeah. You often speak sort of, of different nested cells, and you were just mentioning the self-referential cells and all the structures you just mentioned with that. and you often you also kind of discuss, because you just mentioned the sort of subcortical limbic regions, sort of other nested cells that are, I suppose, evolutionarily older. And within that self referential cell, or kind of the self referential cells builds up upon these, there's the, so you sometimes speak of an interoceptive cell, extra cells. And could you tell us a bit more about those? And maybe a sort of a cross species angle to that, if that makes sense.
0: Okay. That's that's interesting. Okay, so first, okay, so then we saw these cortical midline structures, and then other people spoke about the bodily self, for instance, uh, Olaf Blanke, temporal parietal junction, then also you have interception, uh, your in interceptive awareness of your own heartbeat or your breathing, and this is ultimately, of course, all part of yourself. So then we uh, did a large-scale meta-analysis of all kind of task-evoked studies on the self, interoceptive, uh, and the co- more cognitive, mental. And what we observed, so that the interoceptive self, so all studies where you have to become aware of your own inner body movements, let's say heartbeat awareness, typical, but also the stomach movements. There were some studies about that, some studies about the urogenital tract, so really interesting stuff. And what these studies uh, really showed, they all showed activity in the thalamus and activity in the bilateral insula, which makes perfect sense because these regions are really for interceptive processing. But what is important, and I really want to put this, this very important thing here, that these regions are not just interceptive input from the own body, from the inner body, but they also link the interceptive input to the extraceptive input. So the thalamus receives a lot of afferences, uh, connections, from the five primary sensory regions of the brain. So what you have here is a really coupling between an inter input. So your inner body is put into the larger, already environmental context, if you want to say so. Then you have the next level of studies, which we did, um was about uh, exoceptive proprioceptive. So, for instance, when you touch your outer body or you change the 3D spatial context or you do the rubber hand illusion, for instance, you change the proprioceptive input. So in these studies, as expected, show a lot of activity in the temporal parietal junction and in the premotor cortex, which, of course, makes sense. However, the really interesting thing was that all those studies, completely different, from the interceptive studies, again, showed the recruitment of the insula and the salamus. So again, those interceptive regions were again recruited. One can speak of a recapitulation of those regions. And then we also analyzed all those studies, uh, self-referential processing, so the typical trade, adjective studies, or what I just said to you about the picture, uh, Ottawa and Snow, for you and for me. Uh, or you show a, a picture, maybe because you're half-finished, so maybe you have been there in winter, so you know how it is like. And that those studies showed mainly activity in cortical midline structures. But again, when you look at those studies, they show again activity in temporal parietal junction, premotor cortex, and salamus So you have a continuous recapitulation of the same region on the next layer, but plus additional regions. So well, that's a typical what you call nestedness. And I think that really links and connects the different concept of self, which have been around in the literature over the last 20 years. And what is really interesting now, we are probing these kind of three layer model, including the nestedness, whether it's already present in the resting state. If that is so, these, let's say that these regions somewhat distinguish, but also related already in the resting state. Because that would mean you have an intrinsic topography of the self. So that means if you have an intrinsic topography of the self, there must be some evolutionary component to it because it doesn't develop out of nothing. And that's probably, and that's of course now pure guessing, for me the self is not just here inside the brain. For me the self creates a continuous relationship with your environment. Yeah. In the, in the mental self, of course, it's a virtual relationship, but I imagine myself as part of an environment in, for instance, dreams. Yeah. I set myself, but this relational component and that creates, I think what I said earlier, a point of view, which is key for subjectivity and experience. So this would be very, and of course, the hypothesis maybe for other animal species, unfortunately, I have an idea for cross-species uh, studies. I have the whole design, everything is ready, but I never got the chance to to do it. So if anybody is interested in listening, while mm-hmm. listening to this podcast to do this, I'm happy to do this, it would be a nice thing. So my assumption is that these three layers of self might be differentially expressed to different degrees in animal species. For instance, I expect that most species share this interceptive, extraceptive self. So linking your interceptive inputs to the extraceptive environment because that's key for survival. Yeah? If you do not adjust your interceptive, let's say your heartbeat to the extraceptive conditions, whether it's forty degrees outside or or minus forty, that's key. So I assume that's probably present in many species. Maybe the exoceptive, proprioceptive, maybe also present in many, but maybe not in all, and of course the, the the difference would probably be mainly in the mental cognitive uh, level. Yeah, but again, I could imagine and what we're trying now, as I said, we're trying to link them with different dynamics, with different frequencies, faster and slower frequencies and so
1: on. Yeah, I have to say, um, when you said if someone is listening, and I was just like thinking, oh, it's me, me, I'm really interested in cross species, <laughs> uh, self preferential different nested cell studies, because I did some work on uh, mirror self recognition in primates, and I think that's pretty obvious that they can self recognize themselves. And I think that kind of links to the self referential self. And I'm really interested in doing maybe similar research or maybe navigation research with birds because there's cool stuff with corvids and magpies. But I suppose like when people ask me often, they're like, Oh, uh, why is the self important? Or often these questions of, Oh, do animals have subjectivity self? there's often this sort of people just kind of look at the self referential level and then think, oh, well, if they can't do the mirror testing, then it's sort of a dichotomy of, oh, they don't have it, or they do have it. And I really like the sort of evolutionary continuity angle where interoceptive cells and extroceptive cells might kind of be a basis to it. And I suppose there's subjectivity in tracking on heartbeats. And I think that's a really good sort of way to go about it, because then one doesn't have this specialness that one just has to invoke for humans or primates or primates and corvids or whatever. Um Yeah. yeah.
0: Com- completely agree. And when you mentioned that I was recently in Portugal and we were sitting there in, in, in Lisbon, there's this uh, foundation, uh G- G- banking foundation, and there were a little park and there was a little mirror and a little dog a person, a little dog from came and the dog was in front of the mirror and it was really confused. It went back and forth. And, uh, 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 looked at this and looked. Uh, maybe it's me. You mm-hmm. could really see there was definitely something going. Yeah. It's no, no way. Yeah. So I agree. It's a nice idea with this. Continuum.
1: Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the uh, mind body slash as you reformulated world brain problem. So in your 2008 book, The Spontaneous Brain, you argue that this mind body problem should be rephrased as the world brain problem. Uh, what is the motivation for this?
0: digs deep into philosophy. So see, Kant introduce I have to go back to it because it really sets a light on, on the methodology that I'm doing here. So you can, let's say, I, let me start with this one, not with Kant. Um, so you, you have a philosophical problem. You have d- different ways. You can solve it. You can resolve it and you can dissolve it. So. What the current philosophy of mind is doing, it tries to solve the heart problem, yeah? Why there is there consciousness rather than nothing? And the colliery of the heart problem, obviously, or the other way around is, and the heart problem basically already goes back to Leibniz. It's not just Chalmers. It goes back to Leibniz. Is of course, the mind-body problem. Are they different? That goes, of course, back to Descartes. Philosophy, as you know, is about conceivability. In order to solve the mind-brain problem, you must at least assume that there's a possibility of mind, that the mind is conceivable. Even if you negate later that there is a mind, for the question to be possible, how is the mind related to the brain or the body, you need at least assume the conceivability of mind. Conceivability, mean mind that the existence and reality of the mind is possible. Possible. Doesn't mean that it is actually exists. Is possible. So we are here in the philosophical realm. That's very important and often hard to consider for scientists because they think in the realm of the actual. So, and now you can say, okay, uh, that's basically the presupposition Kant would have said: the transcendent presupposition of the possibility of the question, uh, how our mind and brain relate. So, in what I'm saying, I go, I do exactly this Kantian move, I say, I step back and say, I look at the presuppositions of the mind-brain problem. So, and I say, the presupposition is the conceivability of mind. And then I say, is that presupposition plausible? And plausible means, is it conceptually logically plausible? Yes. You can do that. But there are also many arguments that it may not be plausible. Then I can say, is that presupposition empirically plausible? So is there any evidence that the mind might indeed possibly exist? And that's why I say, no. There's no evidence for that, that there's some kind of separate entity like a mind. There's no indication in our empirical data in the neuroscience, nor for me in the physics, I don't go into physics, but that's what I would assume. So then if I say, look, the presupposition itself is not plausible, then maybe I need to dissolve the question. Remember I said you can solve a problem within the existing presupposition, or you dissolve the problem because the presupposition you abandoned it. I give you another example in the history of science, which I think illustrates it very nicely. At the beginning, in the first 50 years of the 20th century, there was a lot of discussion whether there's a life energy, not only in the 20th century, also before 19th century was a big thing. Henri Bergson, French philosopher, uh, he said is an Elon Vita, is a life energy. Then Crick and Watson discovered the genes, the genetic code. We didn't need to assume a life energy. So the presupposition of the question, is there something, how life exists, is the life energy possible, was not needed anymore. Because you you knew better. Meaning the question was, the problem was dissolved. Same here. So I would say that maybe let's replace the presupposition of the possible dichotomy of mind and body, the conceivability, by another presupposition, let's say, world and brain. Maybe there's a world brain relation. Okay. And why do I say that? Because phenomenologically experience is consciousness is for me about the world. Consciousness is not in here. Consciousness is I perceive and experience myself as part of the wider world. Even when I'm here sitting in front of this computer and the zoom and the laptop, I perceive this laptop as part of the uh, whole laptop. So I have you there, and that I perceive as part of this wider room. And I look outside and so on. And so. Yeah, and that's consciousness. And you lose that context dependence when you're no longer conscious you cannot relate to the environment, so that's why I say, and how is that possible that I continuously relate to my environmental context? My brain must establish that relation alignment. remember my initial examples of the surfer of the musician they align to the music, they align to the waves, and by that you perceive the wave, you become part of the wave, you become part of the world, and that underlies is only possible. Uh, by that the brain aligns. That's why I speak of the word brain relation. So the word brain relation is for me. And then, of course, I can say, yes, maybe now that is that empirically plausible. And I say, yes, there are a lot of empirical data supporting that. And a lot of our research these days is focusing on that. How does the information flows from the stimuli, from the movie, from the external context to the brain? Yeah. So we really investigate this. And this is also the active encoding, the temple encoding of the stochastics of the movie. That's alignment and that's an active process. And then I say, okay, maybe experientially, phenomenologically, it's plausible to speak of a world-brain relation, empirically it's plausible. Then maybe ontologically, existence and reality, that's what philosophy here is about. I say maybe it's ontologically also plausible. Then. What makes the world-brain relationship possible? And that's where I come in with space and time. Your, the space and time of the brain's spontaneous activity, its inner dynamic, its inner topography, aligns to the ongoing time-space of the environment. And the time scales of the environment, of course, are much larger, uh, much longer. Our brain cannot pick up on seismic Earth waves, the ultra-slow frequency fluctuation. Our brain cannot pick up ultrasonic waves like the bed. Thomas Nagel, what is it like to be a bed? So you see here, I say maybe there's a temple dynamic characterization of consciousness of the world brain relation. And that discrepancy between the brain time, inner time, the scale of the brain time, the range, and the scale of the world time, that constitutes our degree of situateness, embeddedness, point of view within the world, and that shapes our mental feature. And then I say, maybe the world brain relation is empirically, ontologically, I develop a spatial temporal ontology uh, plausible.
1: I, I suppose for you and others, it'll be harder than, so when life was this concept, vital. I guess the reason why it kind of got dropped was that we had other terms, we, we we kind of could break it down into process like reproduction, hemostasis, regulatory gene networks, whatever, it's something mechanistic, right? And the idea is that um, you, you're breaking it down, but then also your emphasis on sort of a spatial temporal neuroscience, or thinking of the default model as a baseline is not trying to what's the word divide, in a way, the areas we're studying too much into these separate fields, because that's quite problematic. So in a way, it's harder to kind of create a mechanistic account because you introduce phenomenology and all of that. And how, I mean, I, I guess my question is in a way, what concepts in spatial temporal neuroscience can we kind of bring in so that people can say, we're not dropping mind from the get-go, but we have something else now, and now we can drop the mind. Because I think it, we first need a replacement, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, very good point. I mean, just for the for the listeners to make it clear, I do not drop mental features. Mm, yeah, mental features are for me experiential features. When you look on my website, you see uh, meditation, you see dreams, you see schizophrenic psychosis, depression. I'm fascinated by mental features. I mean, the more people can tell me, the more I'm fascinated because immediately I think. How is that possible? What must the brain do? And how must it relate to the environment to create these kind of experience? So so that's why I'm a big, big advocate of phenomenology and using that. But phenomenology is a methodological tool. You Mm. try to understand the experience uh, of other people. And now we develop, and some of that you already see, published uh, time and space experience scales for different mental disorders. Because I characterize mental disorders by different time and space changes. i give you an example, uh, depression. Depression is for me a speed disturbance. You are too slow, mm. yeah? Your brain is too slow. We have various papers now really showing that your brain is too slow. Your visual perception is too slow. We have a paper coming out on that. Your motor perception, your motor is too slow. Psychomotor retardation, you don't move and you're really depressed like this. And your thoughts are too slow. Your thought dynamic, your thoughts are not changing. We can measure that. So that, for instance, here I think it's a, it's a very concrete example how the inner speed or time of the brain translates into mental features. So for me, mental features have a spatial temporal envelope, yeah, and that temporal spatial envelope shapes how you experience. Yeah, let's say if I were speaking very slowly now and say exactly the same thing it would convey a completely different meaning to you, yeah? So you see how important, how you perceive that slow, oh, God, or you would say, oh, God, the guy is completely boring and I can't listen to him anymore and just oh, turn it off, yeah? So but if I speak lively a little faster, exactly the same content, whoops, conveys a completely different meaning, yeah? And that's what I say, your uh, temple envelope shapes your mental features, how you experience it. And if that temple envelope is abnormal like in psychiatric disorders, um, then you experience things in a different way. And I think, let's say, because you started with the philosophical angle here. Yes, uh, two days ago, I spoke with a physicist, with Andre Lantour, with whom I'm collaborating a long time here. And, and he said, I hadn't met him for years because of the COVID stuff. And he was, are you still doing your spatial temple stuff? Yes, of course. I'm more enthusiastic than ever about it because maybe I'm right. I have the feeling that, that in my optimistic moment, then maybe I'm right. That's really the, the, the connection of neuronal and mental, the common currency. And he said, I would wonder if you're wrong. Yeah. So he took the opposite stance. <laughs> yeah, because I'm doubting because I, I know how difficult it is. But he took the opposite because he's a physicist. For him, time is an essential ingredient of the world. So how the world can constitute mental features, time must be a key feature. Yeah. So he said, I would wonder if you're wrong because, and for me, and that's what you see. For me, the mind is not something special. Mental features are basic features of nature. And they must conform to the basic features of nature. And what are the basic features of nature is time and space. That's uh it, it can work. And probably time is even more dynamic. Of course that's a long controversy time and space relationship. But um the dynamics. And that's what we're trying to do. And yeah, and I think there's of course then also an evolutionary component to it and probably layers of time and layers of different kinds of mental features.
1: I have to say that quite surprised me, because I I would have thought that physicists are the first people to buy into spatial temporal neuroscience, because I suppose like most of the world kind of subscribes to this, um like practically subscribes to this Newton's container view, like time, we are in time, we are in space. But you mentioned earlier, like Carlo Rovelli, and I guess most physicists kind of buy into this idea that sort of time kind of emerges out of the second law of thermodynamics with the entropy and observers and all of that. Do you have an intuition why I forgot the name of your friend, but why he would kind of be doubtful about special temporal neuroscience? No no no,
0: he he was the
1: opposite. Oh he right. said,
0: no he said he would wonder if I'm wrong. Right. So see so, see I so you you have to see. So I have a skeptical stance because mm. the load is on me to prove it. Yeah. So just say I just two days ago I spoke with a psychologist. He was about working memory and of course, you work in memory, you have a psychology, it's represented in the brain. And I said, oh, maybe there's a dynamic to the working memory. And he said, no, 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 you, you just cut that out, all of the data, this is just noise. And I said, no, the temporal structure of the design, let's say, if you present an intertrial interval of either two or three or five seconds, it's essential because your brain encodes it. No, 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 he said, that, that's just just for methodological jittering, we don't need that. Then, okay, I said, okay, no more. Then I sat down and analyzed the data in two different ways. once with the intertrial interval and without, and you got completely different, even behavioral data. I said, this is what you said. He said, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, because, so you, you see, uh, because exactly as you said, you said it very nicely, time is just considered, okay, it's an external time. There's a time and your brain perceives it. Yeah, so I perceive the movement, but my brain itself has no inner time but it has. Your continuous fluctuations, the brain creates its own inner time. Yeah? So, and that's no longer a container view, that's what we call a construction view. Yeah? And that time is constructed in continuous interaction, interface with the environment. It's a continuous match. Yeah? And for him, as a physicist, he said, of course, time is absolutely essential. But if you have a container view, a Newton-like view, where time just comes with the external stimuli but the brain itself has no inner time, then of course you say, not of what you're doing is wrong. What you analyze is just noise. Yeah, You need to pre-process this out of the data. And you can't imagine, when I look through imaging paper, even if they say we have a dynamic approach, dynamic means the pattern of change over time. So that means you need to Connect what is the change from time point one to time point two, to time point three, time point four, so the relative changes. Now, if you cut your data into T1, T2, T3, you neglect what happens, the relative change. If you just add all time points, T1, T2, the signal at T1, T2, T3, but not considering the relative differences, you miss the dynamics. And you were asking me for the interdisciplinary. So this is where I went. How can we, uh, account for this pattern of change? That's why I went into engineering because the engineering, uh, electro particularly the actual electrical engineers, they're very clever people. They have all these kind of measures. It's unbelievable. Autocorrelation window scale, free activity, power law exponent, median frequency. It's unbelievable. So, uh, I, I love, uh, engineers. I cooperate a lot with them. And they have all these measures. They give me the continuity of time. They give me the dynamics of the pattern of change. And that's what we're now trying to do. I just said uh, before this uh, interview, I had a two hour meeting with somebody where we reanalyzed the purely cognitive data sets on on, on visual consciousness now in dynamic terms. And she was completely perplexed. What are you doing here? I said, yes. (laughs) Yeah. So suddenly you analyze the time series of your visual perception, how it fluctuates. Yeah, and then you can do the same on the neuronal level. So, and that's why he was, he said, for him, as a, so in the neuroscience community, time is, as you said, it's just considered in the Newtonian way, uh, perception and cognition of time, but that that is strongly shaped by the brain's own inner construction of time. That is hard to convey. So, the load is on me in a way that is very good because it makes me creative and it makes me ultimately stronger, it's not always easy, but it's uh, very challenging and it can be very creative. So I'm very thankful for that. But for a physicist who always works with time, for him it's almost evident mm. and counterintuitive that it could be otherwise.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I, I think your philosophy background also really comes through here because I'm not sure how you would call this in philosophy, but like reading Wittgenstein and doubling like bidding, hunt, I often get this notion that they really engage with this idea of like, the a priori notions, and you talked about sort of the idea that uh, we should presuppose actualities. And um, I suppose if I was a psychologist, and I grew up in a culture of doing psychology experiments, I would kind of grow up in this culture where time is just sort of this methodological thing. And I don't really have to think about it, because it's in a way, part of the toolbox, but it's never like the object of investigation itself. And I think as a non-philosopher, and most people don't have time to read philosophy because it takes a while, but I guess it's hard to kind of step back from that in a way, look at, I guess, go a priori and then say, well, what what am I using in a way and where do I kind of think of it as neutral when it, in a way, is part of what I should be studying?
0: Yeah, yeah, very yeah. nice. I, I liked it. I mean... Yeah, as I said, I mean, you said it very nicely. Time is basically neglected. The time in the, the temple structure of the paradigms is completely neglected. Yeah, but your brain, and this is for me one of the most fascinating lessons in the, in the last couple of years. Your brain is so adaptive. You, you just can't imagine. It really follows the temple structure of the environment. And it's not just follows the frequency of the external stimulus. So you can say, okay, it follows the frequency external stimulus and you have an increase in the corresponding frequency in your power spectrum of your brain. That's, of course, almost intuitive, but it changes its whole power spectrum structure. It, it's amazing. yeah. So your brain constantly wants to align and adapt, uh, once, of course, in parentheses here. Um, yeah, so that's, that's really amazing. And I think that's probably a temporal uh, encoding process. When you look into current neuroscience, the emphasis is always on decoding. Mm-hmm. I mean, friston with the predictive coding is fantastic. I mean, I, I really respect him. He's a really fantastic model, what he is, a generative model, and his mathematical skills are just—I would love uh, to have them. But there is a temporal component to it. Yeah, that's that's really—it's the, the underlying dynamic which really drives. So it's always on decoding. So. Predictive coding is about decoding the hidden causes. But prior to decoding, there's encoding. Your brain is an encoder; It must, and that encoding process is not just a passive reception of the sensory stimuli. It's a very human-like model of the brain, like David Hume, uh, a passive reception that goes back to British um, empiricism. And that's very much present. There are some exceptions. Uh, Schroeder and lakato spoke of active sensing, and I think I would enlarge this as an active alignment. Yeah. Your, your brain, let's say if my spontaneous activity of my visual cortex is too slow. Yeah. So I have more slower frequency. I don't have a power spectrum in the f- much power in the faster frequencies, My visual cortex will not be able to process and code fast stimuli in difference from slow stimuli. We tested for that. We presented a checkerboard in fast and slow. And we saw that if your brain is too slow, you cannot make a difference between the fast versus the slow. So you process the fast checkerboard stimuli like the slow. So your differential perception of the environment in terms of speed is very much minimized. So, of course, you feel detached and you become depressed as a consequence and so on and so forth. So for me, your brain is an active temple encoder. And that's why we're so much into these timescales, because that's your interface with the uh, environment. And that's really temporal neuroscience, Of course, that goes along with the uh, topography, unimodal, transmodal hierarchy. So that's why we speak of spatial temporal neuroscience. And, and that's really important. Spatial temporal neuroscience is not just about the spontaneous activity and spatial and temporal structure. There are beautiful papers by, by DECO, by the group about DECO modeling all this is fantastic stuff combining, uh, modeling and, uh, and, and empirical data. But the claim of spatial temporal neuroscience is much stronger, is that these spatial temporal structures of your spontaneous activity and then their modulation by task evoked activity really shapes your cognition. Yeah. As I said, it shapes your uh, perception of your environment slow, fast, what I just mentioned, or earlier, the example of working memory. Um, so there is a dynamic envelope to your perception and even to your thoughts. The same thought considered in a slow context might be depressed. This, and the same content in the fast content might make you happy. Yeah. So the temple envelope, the dynamics, which is often neglected, is key in shaping the meaning, the subjective component, not the content. I don't deny cognitive neuroscience is brilliant mm. about the content. But what I'm after is the meaning, the subjective meaning, what it means for me, how I relate the content to me, and what it means for me. That's for me where the spatial temporal neuroscience comes in. So spatial temporal neuroscience and and the bigger textbook will come out in fall in in academic press. They allowed me to write a big textbook about this, which I was very happy.
1: Yeah, you just did my, perfectly my job for bridging us to spatial temporal matching. So, in the talk you mentioned that this idea of matching has sort of parallels to Bruce West's idea of complexity matching in physics, although he's quite interdisciplinary. And could you elaborate on this?
0: Yeah, so Bruce West, he does fantastic work on, on scale-free and the scale-free activity. And when you see his papers, I mean, here's he a global, here's a nature approach. Yeah, he considers scale-free to be part of the nature, so slash, and the brain is part of nature, sent it must show the same features, and ultimately also the neurometric collection. So it's really fascinating. Everybody, I can strongly recommend to, to look into that. And he speaks about, so how, uh, how does the brain process this information? It maybe does it through complexity matching. So what does complexity matching mean? So usually in cognitive neuroscience, we consider the single stimulus. Okay, we have an input. Uh, you see a single stimulus, particularly a visual thing. And uh, because the uh, signal induced by the single stimulus is too weak, you need a certain number of trials. So because our measure instruments, EEG, FMI, MEG, blah, 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 are uh, too insensitive for the single trial changes, because the neuronal changes are too little for the single trial, we need a uh, multiple number of trials. Uh, We do 60, 30, 80, blah, blah, blah trials of the same stimulus, and we get sufficient neuronal response in our uh, measurement device, and then we can see a task evoked or stimulus-related activity. That's true, but it abstracts a lot from the underlying layers, and complexity matching does not Average the stimulus across time, but let's say, okay, we look at the series of stimuli, the stochastics of the stimulus changes. So music, there's a certain change, let's say in the harmonic, it changes over time. The rhythm changes over time and you perceive that. How is that possible? So that your brain tries to match its own inner rhythm. It has a certain rhythm to the rhythm of the music. How can we measure that? For instance, through intertrial phase coherence, entrainment, which particularly goes back uh, strongly to, to Peter Lakatos. So we can basically, the ongoing phase angles of your neuronal activity, yeah, you have the 360 degree of phase angles, they align the angle in a certain coherent way to the uh, onset of the rhythms of the tones. And you do this over time. Intertrial phase coherence is a variance-based measure because it measures basically the variance of your phase angle over time relative to uh, various uh, onsets of the external uh, stimuli. So, and meaning that your brain adapts its own variance changes to the variance changes of the external world. That's complexity measure. Yeah, of course, that's just the very bottom, but I think you see here already. It's a very important view if you take a step. Here you see, I look at the temporal stochastics of stimuli. I don't look at the single stimuli. The single stimuli emerges. It's an elaboration, what we see in the ERP event-related potentials, of that ongoing stochastic where the brain summarizes and integrates that stochastic. But in order for consciousness to be possible, you need the encoding of, of these ongoing stochastics. That's the background of your consciousness. Yeah, that's a continuous background. Your content, you perceive me now here on the screen, that's the content, but you perceive it against the background of your own dynamic activity and how it aligns and complexity matching with the environmental content. I hope that sheds some light.
1: Yeah, that makes totally sense. I suppose if I was doing an experiment and maybe on top of my 60 multiple tries where, trials where trials were then average across them. I suppose across those 60, the dynamics of my activity will be more and more in light with the environment. And I guess my over that time, my response will change because depending on that alignment. So I suppose in a way, we need modeling work where that aside. I guess we can do the multiple trials averaging because you're collecting the data, and uh, you might do, so you might do it anyway. But I guess you would also need to model that somehow. But so you mentioned scale-free dynamics and a related maths, physics term is self-similarity. Could you just sort of explain in general terms what these terms mean?
0: Yeah, good question. So you have um, So scale-free activity means, okay. I I bring the example of the Russian dolls. I think that's the best example. So scale-free... Uh, is about nestedness. So what is nestedness? You have the Russian dolls, and you know you have a big doll from the outside, but then you open it, surprise, surprise, there are many smaller Russian dolls. And then you open again and again and again and again. So that's self-similarity. So they have the same shape, but a different size. Yeah, so meaning the same shape holds across different sizes. That's self-similarity. Yeah? Um, another examples are Brussels sprout. You see these, uh, parts and, uh, typical. So that's really self similarity. And in the, in the way the power spectrum too. So let's say if you deconstruct your power spectrum and typically, as you know, if you have slow frequencies, you have very strong power. If you have fast frequency, you have less power. Go to the seaside. It's not far from where you live. Uh, go to the seaside. You see big waves and small waves you want to swim, you're a little bit afraid of the really big waves, because they might smash you right back to the beach, or you get lost in it, Um, and the smaller waves, they're less powerful, you're not afraid. So now, when you do the same in your power spectrum, let's say you do your power spectrum, let's say we have a combined FMI-EEG study, so to my delight, we have the whole range of the power spectrum, FMI is usually from 0.01 hertz to 0.1 hertz, so from 100 seconds to 10 seconds. EEG usually you can do from, let's say, uh, max 0.1 to, let's say, 240 high gamma. Um, So you have from 10 seconds to 1000 milliseconds or shorter. So let's say you have that, uh, and then let's say you cut this, and, of course, the most power is in the very slow range, 0.01 Hz, and the least power is in the high gamma, 240 hertz. So now, let's say you cut this power spectrum, and you have a... I, I know it's a, it's a podcast, so you don't see my hand now. So you have a descending line, uh, so you have to imagine virtu- virtually. Um, and so now imagine you uh, cut this power spectrum into 10 bits and pieces. For each of these pieces, you will see the same kind of curve, meaning you see the slower frequency within that bit have more power, the faster have less power. And for every bit, even for the high bit, let's say the the last bit is from uh, 150 to 250. Remember, 240 was a higher one, the high gamma. Even there, you can see this curve. That's self-similarity. So why is that of interest? You say this is truly Yes and no. Because this is an ubiquitous feature of nature. You see it everywhere. That makes, of course, some people suspicious. Is that an artifact? There's a lot of discussion about that. But now the really interesting thing. Why is that relevant? So one of my uh, very clever uh, students, PhD students, Philip Klaas, he's really interested in scale-free activity, and he went into that. And said, okay, he investigates that in fMRI uh, in states where you lose consciousness, like, for instance, anesthesia. And remember, the typical power spectrum is scale-free, more power in the slower, less power in the faster. Frequency. And what he found in anesthesia is... The power spectrum was completely flat. It was no longer scale-free. It's over. So there's no more power. There's no power difference between slow and fast frequency. That replicates an earlier finding of ours, which we had in fMRI. So now, now he stimulated those subjects with external input. They didn't react at all. Nothing. No reaction. And no topographic differentiation anymore. No difference between unimodal and transmodal, higher order, lower order regions. Goodbye. And then we did also some computational modeling. We looked for, okay, we had a, a realistic brain model for the computational expert Shaduri uh, 2015 as a monkey based realistic uh, whole brain model. And Uh, we set the model to different levels of scale-free activity. In particular, what we did, uh, we simulated different kinds of inputs. So we had a white noise input, we had a brown noise input, and we had a scale-free input. And what we observed, that the model reacted very strong to scale-free input slash pink noise. And so already at very low dosage, The model reacted and it could make a difference, very good difference, between smaller and larger doses of the pink noise input. So meaning the model reacted very sensitive to the pink noise input. And then we tested the same for white noise input. The model didn't react at all. We needed extremely strong dosages of white noise input to elicit any activity change at all in the model. So what does this tell us? It's uh, tango by two, meaning by brain and environment. Both need to be scale-free. That's the optimal position for the brain to react and align and adapt to the world, slash, since you like to put an evolutionary spin on it to survive. If your brain's inner activity is white noise, you will not react. To pink noise anymore from the environment, meaning you're not adaptive. However, if you only get white noise input, not pink noise input, it's not good either. And this is very real because I'm a psychiatrist. So I see a lot of patients which are severely socially deprived. My assumption is that these socially deprived people or people who, who grew up in an orphan home Uh, In in Romania, after uh, the communism fell down, it was very short. There were a lot of uh, 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 messages of orphaned home, completely neglected people or sort of Caspar Hauser-like people, complete isolation. And they probably never really uh, experienced pink noise input, so their brain and their cognitive facilities couldn't develop properly.
1: Um, Let me ask you another evolutionary questions, because I I enjoy doing that. So you mentioned Uri Buzaki and uh, in a paper with Merzat Guleski, 2001, you uh, mention him a lot, and you you, you, uh, build up on some of his studies where they look at things like uh, rhythms like alpha, waves, spindles, ripples, and they show how these are basically at the same frequency range for a lot of different mammals. So, um, primates, dogs, humans, bats, guinea pigs, rabbits, et cetera. And I think it's quite interesting that, well, A, they are so conserved across species, but then also we talked about this, uh, spatial temporal matching. And, um, often you kind of talk about music and music is kind of a typical example, which is typical for our ecological niche. I'm sure some other birds have other kind of music. I guess my point is that these different ecological niches have different spatial temporal statistics, depending on what's important for the animal, I guess, with what it's like to be a bat, the ultrasound for the bat. And how do you think about sort of this balance between, well, uh, these, uh, you often speak of intrinsic neural timescales, and these frequency ranges, how they are, A, conserved across species, but also they, in a way, have to sort of vary to fit the ecological needs of different animals. Although, arguably, we only talked about mammals now in the Busaki uh, citation.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting paper. This was, uh, I think, uh, 2013 with Logothetis and uh, Um So it's an interesting author combination. Yeah, I mean, I think it really sheds a light on maybe these different timescales. We share some of the timescales, because now if you put an evolutionary spin on it, I would argue that the closer evolutionary, the more matching of the timescales. Yeah? And the more distant your evolutionary, the more different your timescales are. But let's say, if I really put now an evolutionary and ultimately ontological slash philosophical view here on it, I would assume that the human, t- human's brain timescales are nested within the ongoing timescales of other species and so on. So that ultimately what Darwin originally drew this uh, branch of different species that maybe ideally you could deconstruct that also in a branch of different nesting timescales. And that has a very important consequence. So meaning maybe we humans and non-human species, even mammals, share certain timescales. And that's exactly what I think is nicely pointed out in this paper. And what does this mean? So the behavioral psychological consequences are huge for me, because meaning the more we share the timescale, the better we can communicate with each other. And I mean you see this. I often spoke to people with uh, who are very much into pets and also animal researchers, monkey researchers, where they can develop a certain relationship with the animal, yes. Yeah, even if you speak a different language, there's a nonverbal thing, a nonverbal language, a nonverbal communication. And that's probably strongly uh, shaped by the timescales. And just on a side note, I think that this nonverbal level is key in mental disorders. That's where the primary disturbance lies. So there's a dynamic disturbance. As I said, and I think some of that could be experimentally tested. If you apply the same kind of stimulus set, for instance, visual, uh, to species where you know that to different species where you know that they have different timescales. And if they have different kinds of visual perception of the same stimuli based on their different in time scales, then I think you could make a, a case for that. And I would really say, um, it might be basically a temple evolution, evolutionary approach, which one could, uh, put on here. And I would find that interesting because that would really link the different species in both their similarities and differences. And if you put that together with Spatial temple neuroscience, where we say, okay, maybe the temple dynamic provides a dynamic envelope for your perception. It means you have a tool, an experimental tool, to indirectly infer about the perceptual capacities of these other species.
1: Um, I want to return to this a bit later in more detail, but maybe we can sort of foreshadow it. So in the paper I just mentioned, uh, Goleski et al. 2021, there's this nice figure of four, which I'll have in the show notes. And you, what I like about the figure is that you show how, in a way, the uh, intrinsic neural time scales are conserved across species. But the difference, uh, comparing from mouse to cat to monkey to human is basically the number of times nested time scales and basically the, how for humans, these very long time scales are very important for us. And maybe you can sort of give us, um, a story of how that links into notions of self, uh, sort of transmodal integration across networks.
0: Uh, thanks for referring the, to the figure and the question, which um, really... So, let's say, for instance, whales. So, uh, last year we were here up in uh, northern Quebec and where we saw these whales. And it's amazing. So, these guys come just for the summer to Quebec. And the summer is relatively short up there. So only June, July, uh, July, August. And only under mid of August because it becomes terribly cold. And these whales come all the way from South America. So how they can remember that, I would get lost each year. And they come just for the plankton. The plankton is good up there. So these guys must have good time scales, long time scales. So what are these time scales for? That's uh, quick, what do they do? So our assumption, and, and and I think others showed that on the cellular level, that these timescales are key for temple integration and segregation. So again, my beloved example of the music. We hear the tones, and we hear a certain sequence of tones as a melody. My partner is a composer. He does not compose a melody. He just puts some notes in there but he knows the brain much better than i do because he knows how to fool the brain how the brain puts certain tones together and integrates them and says this is a melody and this is where the melody stops so and this is for the time scales yeah if you have the time scales which correspond to the duration of the melody then you can uh, perceive the melody However, if you have only very long time scales, which are much longer than the melody, then you will not perceive the melody as different from the non melody because then you put the melody with the non melody together. So, goodbye melody. So, now if I have only very short time scales, let's say for each single note, I will not be able to put the different tones together in a melody. And we can perceive both the melody and the different tones as separate. That means we must have a multitude of time scales corresponding to the duration of these external inputs. Yeah. So in our brain, and that's the amazing thing, and also in the figure you pointed out, mm-hmm. we also speak of what is called the dynamic repertoire. And I know I foreshadow a question here, but I think it really fits here now. Uh, the difference to the Hassan uh, concept of temple-receptive windows. So Hassan this this fantastic work where he really links the duration of narratives of music, of different segments, uh, to different timescales in the brain. Yeah, absolutely. And he calls this temple-receptive windows. And that makes perfect sense. So basically, I have a temple-receptive window, my primary sensory regions are shorter, they've taught a temple receptive windows, they can uh, pick up, let's say, different parts of a word or the syllables of a word, uh, of a word, not the word. It's a nice Freudian lapsus here. And uh, then you have, let's say, intermediate regions where they pick up a whole word, uh, word or a sentence. So another lapsus, same thing. Uh, and then a whole paragraph uh needs of course very long timescales, that's probably the timescales in the default mode network regions. And he fantastically shows that and replicates the finding in different modalities and makes perfect sense. So and that's basically task evoked activity. How is are the timescales of your external inputs of your story of your music met or related to the timescales? The brain. So perfect sense. My question starts here. How is it possible that some people perceive the melody not as melody or not? So my question is the subjective component. Where is that coming from? That's why I say maybe, and it's another line of studies which showed that the brain itself already in the resting state, independent of any external uh, tasks state, already has a certain grouping of shorter and longer timescales along sensory regions, like visual cortex, unimodal regions, and higher order regions, prefrontal cortex, transmodal regions. So there's a gradient from a shorter to longer timescale. And then the question is, what are these timescales are these time scales in the spontaneous or resting state activity related to the temporal receptive windows Hasson described? That's exactly the thing where we start. So, and we showed this in some sense that there's a prediction that the resting state intrinsic neural timescales strongly overlap and also predict the changes of the intrinsic neural timescales. And for instance, when you lose consciousness, your timescales in the resting state cannot change and adapt anymore during task days. So your timescales have a very adaptive functional role. And that's, I think, where we really go beyond the, the times so you have to consider that like an iceberg for me. So in some of my talks, I like to show an iceberg. You might want to show this in the podcast too, just a simple iceberg from some of my talks so I can send it to you because it's so simple, but I think it illustrates it very well. So the upper part of the icebergs is really the temporal receptive window. It's mapping directly with the external uh, uh, structure, the temple structure. However, then the question is, where do these temporal receptive windows in the brain come from? Is there an evolutionary component? Yes. And maybe that is already the time scales already must manifest in the spontaneous brain activity. Now the question is, how is the relationship between the lower parts of the iceberg? The spontaneous beneath the water that the, the intrinsic neural time scales of the spontaneous activity and the temporal receptive windows of the other part of the iceberg and that's uh, where we also in this figure we speak of a dynamic repertoire so your brain can apparently amplify and multiply let's say its time scales for instance you have a very long time scale and that might be chopped in shorter time scales uh, according to the respective stimulus Uh, material in the external world. How this uh, chopping up of this dynamic repertoire, your variance, your possibility, variability of your timescale operates is unclear. So what we are now currently doing, we are looking, look, is the variance of your timescales related to the variance of the timescales of your external input? Because one thing is for sure, input encoding, complexity matching, we had this before, Temple stochastics, is related to the variance of your brain activity. Meaning maybe it's a variance of your time. If you're variable in your time scale, you can follow the music in all its different uh, rhythms and speeds. If you're not variable, you get lost. That's sort of, and that's what we call this dynamic repertoire. And your dynamic, if I'm very, if I, let's say, simple example again. I speak 20 languages. So I have a much higher likelihood of aligning and communicating with many more different people. If I were speaking only German, then I would be limited to Germany, Australia, uh, Australia, Austria, the Freudian lapses are today are very interesting, and and Switzerland, and maybe some people who speak uh, Germany wherever in the world. But if I speak uh, 20 languages, I have a much larger scope of communicating slash aligning. Same thing here. If I have a rapid reper- larger repertoire of timescale, I have a better chance of uh, aligning to the external environment, and my consciousness can be extended. So here you see already an evolutionary implication that the degree of your spatial temporal extension of your consciousness, the degree to which you can align to different situations in the environment, may be proportional to your number of time scale rapid.
1: Okay, uh, I've, I've got a lot of thoughts. One, I just, I, I find it super interesting to consider the link between across species uh long-term navigation and song or communication because as you said whales travel long distances and there's also whale song where i suppose they need different timescales in a way coordinate uh basically the rhythm with the shorter time scale aspects of whale song and the other thing i was wondering about so you mentioned how with music it can also basically influence the resting state activity and since we already talked sort of about clinical aspects of, let's say, depressed patients having abnormally long time scales, would you then assume that people who play music also, and specifically maybe play different types of music genre where the temporal organization might differ, that they in a way have, um, like long-term personality differences where their time scales are aligned to those genres they engage with? Uh, Would that is that an experiment that has sort of looked at something like this? Yeah, that's a
0: very interesting remark. I mean, we all know music has a good effect, not only Mm -hmm. on your mu, all your cognition. You know that people who learn music, they have better cognitive skills, they stable more personality. So music has enormous effect. That's very well known. Education, it's a key thing in education and when you look in the history of mankind, music has always been around. I mean they made always some kind of noise and you mentioned the birds earlier. That is music when I go mm-hmm. here into the uh, forest and I hear these guys singing, I said, damn, I would like to decipher their time scales <laughs> and then I know what they're talking about with each other. Yeah. I mean these guys communicate and they have fun and they enjoy and like us. Yeah, same mm-hmm. thing. It's nothing different. So you see, so my idea of spatial temporal neuroscience is really, it's a very basic examples of nature grounded.
1: Okay. uh, Let's talk about time perception. We already talked about the difficulties of Isaac Newton's container view. And in a lot of time perception papers, you kind of use the terminology of inner and outer time. What is inner and outer time?
0: Yeah, good question. It goes again back to Immanuel Kant, Critique of Pure Reason. There's a first part in that book uh, called Transcendental Aesthetics, and there he distinguished between inner and outer time consciousness. Uh, So I'm aware of my inner time. The time, let's say, for instance, my inner time is, for instance, my heartbeat or my breathing. Yeah, They constitute, and you and I breathe in very different rhythms, and your heart rhythm will also be slightly different. That already creates inner time. And the same with uh, my brain. My, uh, you mentioned Buzaki, you mentioned the oscillation fluctuations. This creates a certain time, a certain speed of time, for instance. If you have a lot of slow waves, it's slow time. Um, and if you have faster time, if you have a lot of fast uh, frequency oscillation. And that is distinguished from the outer time, for instance, when you present me certain rhythms in the music. Uh, so that's basically the concept of inner and outer time. And you asked me earlier before how that is relevant, for instance, for for the mind, uh, this distinction. So I would uh, state that this inner time, our mind. So, okay, that's, again, a very important philosophical background here. I think it's important to put this into perspective. So the mind is often considered as a temple. The, 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 The mind has no time. Why? That goes back to Descartes again, because Descartes said, okay, we can look at the body. The outer observer in third person perspective, we can see the t- changes of the body and, uh, in outer time, and so the body is clearly in time. And of course, we all know that the body degrades and everything, and so on and so forth. Uh, and We can't stop it, obviously. So, and the mind, we cannot observe the t- uh, mind. So, meaning the mind is atom. and that has really been often conceived. You see this a lot in current neuroscience series uh, of consciousness. They all eight, ate- many of them are eight temple or non temple. Uh, IIT has a very small temple window, uh, 30 to 50 milliseconds. They don't consider different timescales. So that's one of the key things where we say in the temple spatial theory of consciousness, different timescales. And I give you an example. So the breathing. So one of my students was very interested in breathing, uh, Josh Gohein, and he really introduced the breathing. And breathing is, of course, about slow breathing. Fast breathing is different timescales. When you breathe very fast, you can literally induce anxiety states. So you really have an impact on your mental features. If you're very slow, you're calm. Many meditation techniques, I was in India uh, last year, they have all kinds of breathing techniques over there because they induce it to have a meditative state. So you see here the slow waves of your inner time slash your breathing have a strong impact on the waves, and on your mental states. So here suddenly you see that consciousness is about our inner type. William James spoke of a stream of consciousness. I take that very literally. These are waves, overlapping waves, continuous waves of consciousness. That's always the background of your consciousness. And that shapes how you perceive the content of your consciousness. And indeed, we really show that the breathing, directly the breathing frequency timescales directly correlates with the timescales of your mental dynamics or mental changes. So there's a direct spatial-temple or temporal-dynamic link here.
1: Yeah, let, let's talk about the, the work with Josh Cohen. So I guess in between neurodynamics and breathing is the heart. So how does the heart fit into the story?
0: See the hardest for me, all cardiologists forgive me, hopefully, is just a different timescale. Yeah, uh is a faster timescale, obviously around one second, well, hopefully. And uh yeah, so you have every second you have a heartbeat and you have a certain variability in that. So that's a faster timescale. Interestingly, for us it's much more difficult to perceive and become conscious of the heartbeat when compared to the breathing. So that tells you a little bit about the timescales of your consciousness. Your time, in order to become conscious of some, apparently you need a longer time scale. And the time scale of the heart seems to be just at the border. Yeah, you, you can become aware of your heartbeat perception, but it's not so easy. And of course, if you're faster, then it's all over. And the stomach, there was a very fascinating paper by Richter et al. 2017 who investigates the stomach dynamic. Yeah? So the stomach also fluctuates in 0.01 and probably the other organs too. So, my very, of course, very speculative, tentative assumption. That maybe these different organs, including the brain, uh communicate with each other through their timescales. Yeah? And the brain seems to sort of integrate all these timescales and put them together. That's probably the role of the brain, but who knows? Um, yeah. So that's basically their common language. The same way you and I and all listeners now, we speak English.
1: So in with Josh Koheen, you did like um a review paper looking at some of the studies related to how brain topography kind of maps onto these different slow-fast timescales for breathing and heart the heart rate. And I was wondering, I guess this is sort of interceptive signaling, and then the Uriah Sun work is more external stimulus-based, so uh, let's say reading with sentences and phonemes and all of that. So how much is there overlap in your review paper findings and the Uriah Sun work? Because I guess it's different modalities, but it still kind of gets down to timescales. And how, how much do you also would say that topography matters for this kind of timescale organization, topography?
0: Yeah, very good question. Uh, that, that's a really interesting question. It raises a lot of ideas. So first, when we did this review paper, I, I was shocked. Every brain is affected by the breathing. There's no region, there's no specific region and you see the same for the heartbeat. You see the heartbeat evoke potentials in all all regions of the brain, weaker or, or less, stronger or less, but no less. And in a way, it makes sense because breathing is about oxygen and your brain needs oxygen. Your, ox- your brain is energy hungry. It consumes 20% of all the energy of your body, all this 2% of the body weight. So the brain wants energy. What does it do with the energy? This special temple construction and constitution of inner time. How does it relate to Hassan? Remember what I said earlier that Hassan is, for me describes the upper part of the iceberg in a brilliant way, timescales matching external temporal receptive windows of the brain. Now that raises the question, how are these temporal receptive windows generated? That's why I would say intrinsic neural timescales of your spontaneous activity. Next question. How are these intrinsic neural timescales generated? That's why I would see interaction of body and brain. And maybe the timescales of your breathing. Now you say not of this is, is metaphysics. No. Because, as I said, you're breathing. When you breathe fast or slow, you have a huge impact on your brain and on your mental features. When you're extremely anxious, you're not only anxious, your thoughts are racing like crazy. Um, we're currently conducting a clinical trial on breathing therapy, systematic, individualized, brain-based, precision-based breathing therapy, it's really a new approach, in anxiety patients. And it's amazing, so far we have 15 patients, and all patients after three weeks saw a significant decrease in their anxiety. You usually don't have that in psychiatry, 100% respond because we individualize the breathing frequency. If you ask me, I would expect, let's say, if you do the Hassan experiments, under doing different breathing protocols, slow and fast, you would get different results. Yeah. So, and that, even more important, you would perceive the same music in slightly different ways. Hypothesis if you breathe very slow, you might experience a lot of medium exciting, medium fast, let's say, allegret- allegro in classical music terms. I know this is not what everybody hears and knows you would perceive that sort of as maybe slow and very calm. Now, if you breathe extremely fast, you might experience and perceive the same music as rather stimulating and overexciting because your inner state is different. So you match, you have faster time scales then, and you only match with the faster timescales of the music, but no longer with the slower timescales because they are basically abolished because you breathe only fast. Abolish, not abolish, is too strong, of course. Yeah, so meaning your your breathing constitutes, shape some of the timescales in your brain through which then you align to the timescales of your uh, outer stimuli, slash the video. So it would be very interesting to, to investigate that. And I would assume, of course, let's say your timescales in the brain shift to so shorter or longer according to your breathing. That's what we also currently investigate.
1: Um, so this is not confirmed, but um, I would like to do the second episode on the role of the heart breathing and time perception. There should be plenty of more on this, but let's talk about your, in your book, Neurowaves. And we talked a bit about depressed uh, patients and a sort of a slow time perception, but also you mentioned manic uh, bipolar patients. And you kind of link time perception to neuronal variability. And could you sort of unpack this three-way relationship?
0: So time scales, neuronal variability, and what was the
1: The Manic slash depressed bipolar patients.
0: Ah, manic. Okay, okay, okay. For me, depression, as I said earlier, is a speed disturbance. So speed means your brain is too slow. And literally, your brain is too slow. We showed that. Your pers- and that impacts all your function. Your motor is too slow. Psychomotor is Your visual perception is too slow. Uh, you don't perceive the fast different from the slow. Your thoughts are too slow. Uh, they don't change. So, and we assume that that is obviously related to the time scales. Yeah. Um, that's really, so meaning if you're very variable, if you have a high degree of change, Variably means change. You change a lot. I change my speed, I speak my French, I change and also change my, I speak very slow, I speak very loud, so there's a change. And that gives you the perception of speed. Now I speak always the same and I don't modulate my voice. The absolute speed of my voice is still the same, but there is no change in my intensity of my voice. Okay, now you're turned off and got it. Okay. too boring. Yeah, so that's extremely slow. But I spoke in the same speed, objective speed, but I didn't change. There we are. So change gives you the speed. So for me, change is a proxy, an operational proxy of speed. So meaning, and if you have a lot of change, also in different timescales, sometimes slow, faster change, that means you have changed in different timescales. And what we've, as I said, what we observe in depression, you don't have enough change. Your inner neuronal activity doesn't change anymore, literally. For instance, in your motor cortical regions, they don't change, this decreased variability, and that means you perceive everything as slow. Nothing changes for you anymore. And in mania patients, is exactly the opposite. So when if you for instance your motor cortex does not show any change in your activity, you also don't show any change in your motor activity, meaning you don't move anymore. Psychomotor retardation. That's exactly what you see in depressed patients. Now, if you have too much activity change in your motor cortex, of course you move a lot. That you called psychomotor agitation, extreme anxiety, or when you're manic. You move around so if i were manic i could have not sitting here for one and a half hour in front of his laptop i would have already ran around like crazy yeah because i i need to move of my spontaneous because of the spontaneous variability changes of my motor cord.
1: the way i think about it is that let's say for the depressed patient if there's a high frequency stimuli which might be engaging but then The slow frequency waves, which is sort of internally directed activity, which also maybe relates to high self, self-referential processing, um, and mind wandering that then in a way controls or modulates the high frequency waves, but like aliasing. And therefore the brain is unable to code for these high frequency events. And therefore maybe the environment is not engaging. And that then maybe leads to a cycle where the patient is more depressed because life doesn't seem as engaging as it could be because. They, they like the engagement of the high-frequency waves. Um, yeah. Right. all right, next question. Um, so in an email exchange, and we've talked a lot about uh, time duration and speed, and we talked about time scales. And I think it'd be good to disentangle these two because I think of them as different, but maybe related. So in a way, what is the difference? And if I was a researcher, and I tried to kind of have a very practical interpretation of them. How could I manipulate them, measure them mentally or neuronally? The time scales.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. For instance, so one way very concrete measure is what you call the autocorrelation window. So basically you have a signal, uh, at T1, T2, T3, T4, T5, and so forth. And then you look how much the signal is similar at T2 to the, relative to T1 to. T3 relative to T2 and T1 and so forth. So you have these time lags and you look for the similarity, the degree of to which the col- the signal over time correlates with itself. That's basically described the autocorrelation window. And you can measure that you can also measure the area under the curve and then you say, okay, where's the 50 percent of my correlation at which time point and you get concrete, temporal windows. Let's say you get milliseconds in EEG, EEG, in FMI you get five to six seconds. So you get little windows and these windows are different between different subjects. There's a remarkable intersubject variability. And even more interesting, these windows already in the resting state, they correlate with your degree of self-consciousness. If you have longer windows, you have a higher degree of self-consciousness. So self is about self-continuity. The more continuous your neuronal activity, slash, the longer your autocorrelation window, the correlation of the signal with itself over time, the higher your degree of self continuity. So that really gave me, I found that very interesting and we replicated that in in various studies. So that's really key. And these temple windows, as I said, they basically try to match complexity matching earlier with the temple windows of your Uh, environmental input. For instance, the temporal windows between two different tones in the music. That's really, I think that's the way you, you can measure that. And then you can measure that and now we are starting doing that. We also measure those autocorrelation windows on the behavioral or psychological level. All you need is a time series. You can have the reaction time. So you can see the reaction time, okay? You have, let's say, 300 trials of your reaction time. That's a time series. And then you can uh, see, analyze whether the fluctuations in your reaction time over these 300 trials, there's a certain correlation pattern across the different time lengths. And then you can ideally uh, correlate the autocorrelation window from the behavior level with the autocorrelation window on the neuronal level. And you expect, indeed, we show this in, in papers which will come out, uh, they correlate highly with each other. So, what is shared between neuronal and mental level is the temple window. The autocorrelation window we call this common currency. It's like neuronal and mental share this temple dynamics. slash here, in this case, the autocorrelation window. Uh, it's like English between us, yeah? It's a common currency. That's where we say that's a link between the neuronal and the mental level.
1: I guess also part of my question would kind of be, how does this link to time, uh, speed or time duration perception? So let's say there are individual differences and a person has, uh, higher, longer temporal scales with, um, uh, a longer autocorrelation window and more self-continuity. Would they maybe then also have, um, perceived time as passing more slowly where the speed seems slowed down? Like, what is the relationship between time duration perception and time scales?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that experiment would need to be done. We sometimes now include in our behavior measures the time perception. Uh, and of course, then we want to also analyze the relationship to the temporal windows, the autocorrelation window in the brain. Uh, but that's a good question. I would exactly say, if you have longer autocorrelation windows, your time perception, duration perception, Uh, slows down, meaning you perceive longer duration. Indirectly, this is indeed uh, the case, for instance, in depression, where you have longer autocorrelation windows, and your time uh, perception uh, duration is long. They perceive the present moment as eternally long. Yeah, No doubt, it never stops. Um, But that's an interesting experiment. You would ideally like to link the fluctuations in your autocorrelation window, over time so you want to calculate a dynamic autocorrelation window which you can do if you have a sufficient number of uh, sampling points with the fluctuation then in your time perception duration yeah let's say if you have a shorter autocorrelation window you expect a faster a shorter time duration perception and vice versa
1: all right uh in a second i have a few sort of career and final questions but this is kind of a final time question and i think in many ways, we have looked at this, but I think it would be good to sort of summarize it again. In a 2022 commentary paper, you asked whether object relations are temporal, and this links to your ideas of intrinsic neural timescales, and also the ideas about difference-based coding, which you mention a lot in your 2018 book. And what is difference-based coding, and how does that compare to what you earlier described as what cognitive neuroscience is really good at as the sort of the Studying uh, neural contents and how is this different?
0: Yeah, that's a uh, that's a really difficult question to answer and a good one. So, what do I mean by difference-based coding? Um, difference-based coding is so. What I assume. Look, what I said earlier. So, dynamic is the pattern of change over time. Now, specified is the pattern of change from one time point to another, from t one t two two to the degree to which the signal correlates with itself. We had earlier the nestedness. Slower frequency is nest, nests or integrates the faster frequency. yeah, The Russian dose. And the assumption of difference-based coding is that these relations, the difference in the signal, the relative difference in the signal between T1 and T2 is key for mental features. So the opposite is stimulus-based coding. Let's say the absolute value of T2 of the signal at T2 is key for the mental feature at T2. Difference-based coding has a different assumption. Let's say it's a relative difference of T2 relative to T1 that is key for the mental feature at T2. So it's a testable hypothesis and you can analyze the data. And that's the difference. Now you can say, how is that? Con- and the other one is stimulus versus difference-based coding. And actually, on a on a side note it's it's funny. So I introduced it in my unlocking the brain in the volume one, in the coding of the brain. And then I tried to publish that in papers, bring it in as a little bit as a box, and each time the reviewer said, We don't understand this, kicked it out. So now I smile at the time I was confused. Now I smile. Nobody understood this difference space coding. So I'm I'm delighted that you ask for it. So, of course, what I need to do, and I do this in Unlocking the Brain, how is difference-based coding? So coding is usually a concept which you don't use so much on the systemic level of EEG and FMI, but it's very in the cellular level, on the population level of neuroscience. So you would need to link it to other concepts like rate coding, and I do this in this Unlocking the Brain. But for me, this is really the difference-based coding, and you see these kind of measures like the autocorrelation window, or we have various other measures like lempel of complexity, uh, uh, signal compression over time, uh, scale-free activity, as I said, the nestedness, you can measure that with the power law exponent. And I already mentioned, remember, when the nestedness is going lost, like there's no difference in the power between slow and fast frequency, you lose consciousness. So these are, all, for me, examples of difference-based coding. So you see that the difference-based coding is an extremely fundamental basic principle, almost ontological. And in that sense, it's an even larger framework than what Fristen calls predictive coding. Predictive coding is a subset, where I would say, of difference-based coding. Yeah, it's across time, you have an empirical prior, you have a prediction error, so the empirical prior is compared to the actual input. That presupposes, for me, difference-based coding. So it's a very, and that because it is so abstract, uh that's probably why people had a difficult time and said, OK, it makes no sense, eliminate from the paper. Yeah. yeah? So, and I don't know, at some point, I would love to bring it back. But ultimately, what we do with all these measures from uh, signal processing, autocorrelation window, Lempel-Ziv complexity, sample entropy, multi-scale entropy, Median frequency, uh power law exponent, detrended fluctuation. And I just throw in some uh because maybe some reader uh knows some of this. These are ultimately all measures when you look down, they measure differences. Differences between different time points, relative changes. And so far, I think many of these measures we try to link them to mental features, like as I said the autocorrelation window scale and scale-free activity power law exponent in the resting state and task predicts your sense of self and also how it reacts to external stimuli. The same for consciousness. Uh, we have a paper on sleep where we look how the intrinsic time scale change during sleep. Also for mind-wandering, we do this. For meditation, we're working on this. For dreams. So we really try to link this sort of difference-based coding-related measures linked to mental features and try to predict them. So for me, the difference-based coding is an integrated, it's a brain-mind coding principle. It's not just the brain, but I would argue, ultimately, if I take a biological view, it's a basic principle of nature. Uh, that's the way of, li- at least of living nature, if not also of non-living nature. But that's, for me, I'm unable to show that opposite.
1: That was great let's get to some career questions. So you have degrees in psychiatry, neuroscience and philosophy, so quite a lot. And um, you've been really successful with this combination. Um, and if you could time travel back, uh, would you do anything different? Okay.
0: <laughs> okay, I tell you again, as you see, I always like to look in the gen- genesis or genetic aspect how things develop, and then it's, it sheds a light. On, on the question, so I had a very good philosopher teacher, and I, apparently I had a predisposition for abstract questions. So I liked the philosophy very much, and it really. But I didn't want to study philosophy alone. So I also want to study some real stuff. So, of course, what is linked to philosophy? Of course, the first thing is physics and mathematics. is clear. Beginning of the twentieth century, look at Heisenberg. I mean, they had all philosophers Einstein. They were deeply philosophical, and ultimately. Every good scientist needs philosophy to have a model. The great science is a change in models. It's not just a change in the little data. It's a change in the model and how that model makes you perceive things which you didn't see before. You see the same data. You have a different model. You see different things in the data. That, for instance, we analyze cognitive paradigms in terms of their temporal structure. And the cognitive people say, what is this? It's strange. Yeah? So it's really a change in model. So then, of course, the other thing is you can philosophy and law, and then, of course, philosophy in the brain and my brain. so at the time, there was no neuroscience program around. Wonder, wonder wonder, neuroscience programs are very young, uh, so I had to study medicine to go to the brain. I was never wanted to become a clinical doctor. I'm happy to be a clinical doctor if I can help people it's It is fantastic with my knowledge, but it was not my primary purpose, like many other medical doctors. So I studied medicine, was fascinated by the brain, of course, when you finish medicine. And I studied philosophy and medicine in parallel, otherwise I couldn't have uh, gone through all these medical studies with all these different subjects, surgery, where I was not interested at all. Okay, and then when you finish medicine, you somehow need to do a residency because otherwise your degree is worthless. So okay, so of course, psychiatry was the most interesting for me, the mental stuff. I did a little little bit of neurology. Started out with neurology. I said that's a brain, but the the phenomena were interesting, but not as interesting for me. So I really like these mental stories and what patients report me. And It tells me so much about. I'm still, after all these years, I'm still fascinated by it, and it, it, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So okay, so I did the residency, and after the residency, I really wanted to quit because the the, the medical atmosphere, the environment, is very conservative, very hierarchical, and was sort of a sp- free spirit like me, that wasn't the right thing. And uh, okay, so then I applied and I got a grant for uh, a habilitation and uh, PhD in philosophy. But then at the same time, I also got an offer to to let a brain imaging lab in a psychiatry clinic. And fMRI was new at the time. I said, okay, great. I mean, get to the brain, okay. So then I sort of finished all these degrees and then I try to apply for positions, and I must say having these degrees is fantastic for the knowledge i must I'm, I'm really happy that I do this because I would have never developed the kind of approaches I'm doing now the special temporal approach without these three degrees and I tell you, I mean one radical reversal I reread Kant again in two thousand three I had a half a year off between jobs. And I reread the critique of pure reason, and after that it daunted me, I need to change my whole picture. That's why I went to the spontaneous activity and the spatial temple and the self and so forth. So that's basically like Kant cost in me what Hume cost in Kant, awakening from the dogmatic slumber. Um so it's really amazing. So I changed the whole picture and said, Oh, you're crazy. Okay, anyway. So now it pays off scientifically. Career-wise, I cannot recommend it because. You get, you know, peer reviewers everywhere for the grants, for the position, for the papers. You get interdisciplinary reviewers who have a hard time of understanding these different views. And it took me a very long time to understand their criticism. I learned a lot from trying to take in their perspective. And that really sharpened my work. As I said uh, earlier, uh, when the cognitive people criticized me, at the first I was really... I didn't know how to react and I didn't know. And they said it's trivial what you're doing with the spatial temple. And I was really offended. I mean, you're you're trivial what you say. And and then it daunted me that they argue from a different point of view, a different perspective with a different model. And now I know their model, and now I can play and I can design experiments, so I'm glad for the challenges. Thank you very much. Same with the traditional philosophers. But it's painful. It can be really painful and I must say, it has concrete career disadvantages. The neuroscientists are confused about your philosophy. They say you're not a real neuroscientist. Just because you have the philosophy in your CV. If I were taking out the philosophy and just present the neuroscience, even without the psychiatry, okay, okay, we can consider you for the position. I'm sure I would like to make the double-blind, placebo-controlled, (laughs) charm-controlled study. Yeah? It's the same with the philosophers. The philosophers are known no, 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 you're a neuroscientist. Clinician, oh, no, you're a neuroscientist, you're a philosopher, you're not a clinician. But I always worked, I always, I still see patients. Well, not so many because my time is limited, but I still see it because it keeps me awake, I learn, I learn from these patients. So career-wise, it's not an easy one. Everybody shouts for interdisciplinary. When you actually practice it, you have a real problem. It's not an easy one. But as you see, I learned a lot. Knowledge-wise, it's fantastic. I'm really happy because particularly now where I look a little bit better through, I better understand, I have a little bit more of a bird's eye view. I really enjoy it. So I, Sometimes there's a feeling now, particularly since I have the spatial temple model now, that I really start since two, three years and now I can really go full steam. So that's a wonderful thing. But when you look into the history of neuro of science in general and philosophy, it's nothing new. New ideas take time, and we're all conservative. We ultimately want to stick to what we are known that gives us a certain certainty and security. It's normal. Science-wise, I really enjoy this, and it gives me a lot of new ideas for philosophy, which I think can be fruitful for philosophy itself, for neuroscience, and also for psychiatry, that we really try to translate something of that into clinical therapy and diagnosis. I mentioned the breathing therapy. So for them, I'm a very happy person, in part because you get all this criticism and you have to be pragmatic. I think what's extremely important, if you want to have a career recommendation from my side, I know that the environment tells you, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to be editor of a research topic, you need to publish, you need to get this little award, you need to get this grant, you need to get this. And I know the pressures are enormous. And you need to go to this conference, into this conference, into this conference. The problem is, when you do all this, you don't really have time to think and about the science. Anymore. Because for me, science takes time. You know, I'm a time researcher. That's why I'm always too late for everything I come. But um, takes time. And when I speak of time, I don't mean physical time. I don't mean okay, I have two hours. Okay, I can do this now. No, I mean mental time. I mean. Open time, where you can mind can just scroll around, look at a little kid. The little kid lies there and explores, looks around. I tries out this, tries out that, tried out this. If you would contain the little kid, or you can only oh well, no, I'm afraid if you move over there, uh, I, I I build a wall, I build some stuff that you cannot do there. The kid would not like it. The same is with the spontaneous activity of, of, of brain. It tries to explore. That's what creativity is. Creativity is for me variability. It's not a specific network. It's the whole brain. Uh, excursions. Look at the uh, plots, variability. Yeah, it's excursion. You're a Go in this, you try out this. And I take a lot of time. I run every morning. This morning I was running two hours here to work, and I was swimming, and I was thinking, and I got a good idea. Yeah? Great. Yeah, so now it it was an idea on something which I discussed two days ago and where I sort of left, okay, I don't really know what I shall do, but I think it's meaningful. Okay, this morning I got it. So you need mental time. I like to travel. I'm travel addicted to all these novelty countries and and people. I find that always interesting. I'm lucky enough that I, I get some invitations for the talk. So I see a lot, and I love these long flights. Yeah, because finally I have five, six, eight hours where I can really work on the paper and without any time constraint. So I can dig much deeper. If I had only two hours, I would know it's only two hours. I would not dig as deep. So you need mental time. And for that, it's not, so you really need to block your time. I can strong, and also it's for your own inner mental sanity and health, at least for me. I need that. If I'm too much external, I'm not a happy person. And that's really important. And that's for me, really take your time. Because science is also about thinking, of course, analyzing data, acquiring data, publishing, writing. But science, it's all these different facets. It's very important. So I gave another interview to somebody where I said, don't follow always what the external people and the administrators tell you what you need to do. But when you see, I somehow looked always for some little niches here. And now, of course, everything looks great and straightforward in my case, or it seems to, it's not. Trust me. And even still, it's navigating and being pragmatic and finding loopholes. And I think that's very important. Again, when you look into the older guys, I learn a lot from the history. Uh, same thing. They always found their niche, they did their thing, and but they were deeply convinced that they had to follow this track. That they had an intrinsic motivation. I think that's the most, When you let's say, when you apply to me in my lab or said, what do you really want to do? What interests you? Of course, you need to somehow be within the spatial temple thing. But I ask the people, what do you really do? What do you find interesting? Look at our website. Look at the papers. Single out two or three papers which you find fascinating. And then I can make you some suggestion what might be of interest to you. That's the key. The intrinsic interest. Independent of any external stuff, awards, grant, paper. Come Secondary, yes, you can be pragmatic, but the first should be your intrinsic interest in motivation. And that drives you. And that, at least in my case, makes me very happy.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm not, I might have to fact check this, but I think I read yesterday that Kant at some point was interested in seismic waves. So that's quite a weird avenue. And what was the thing you were thinking uh, you figured out this morning when you were jogging and uh, swimming? I'm curious.
0: You want to know it all. So, mm-hmm. apropos cut, he wrote about, you know, in his lifetime, there was this big earthquake in Lisbon, uh, 1764, I think. I can't remember the exact date. And he wrote he wrote a relatively scientific-like discussion about it. And indeed, it's real. Because at the time, many people thought, okay, it's, it's God, it's the revenge of God, it's the devil, and all that kind of stuff. He said, no, 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 it's just a scientifically explanation. So, Kant was not as abstract as as we think. I mean, of course, the other one is Leibniz. No, this morning I was just thinking um, because we had the discussion how we can link, uh, uh, for instance, breathing and thoughts, yeah, and how can we make a direct, let's say, experimental link, and how can we show that? And I was saying, okay, what kind of experimental design and what kind of measures do we need? And sort of that was left open from the discussion two days ago. And this morning I said, okay, that's that's the way we can do it. So the idea was, let's say, if you breathe slower, you might have more abstract thoughts, meaning you have more activity shift towards your higher order transmodal regions. If you have more concrete thoughts, more about sensory details, you have faster breathing because sensory details require more shorter timescales to pick them up and to separate them from others. That was sort of the idea, and you can you can test it. And now we test it.
1: Two more questions for you: Subjectivity and mental features are very important, and in your work on the common currency between neural and mental, let's say um, I was person X who is a computational neuroscientist, and I don't really have time to study me- mental phenomena as a degree. Let's say I, I don't have time to become a psychiatrist or a um, psychologist, but I'm really interested in looking at how my modeling research, my neural data can be compared with this. What can I do that isn't doing a second degree?
0: Yeah, I think um, computational modeling. I would do some uh, dynamic modeling, for instance, modeling of the intrinsic time scales. I would stimulate the model with different kinds of inputs, different kinds of stochastics of the input, test, shuffle, different forms of shuffling in the model and uh, get these kind of dynamic relationships within within the model itself and at the interface of the model with the environment. So I would put a very strong dynamic spin on it. As I said, I mentioned earlier, we stimulated the model with wide, different degrees of pink noise and white noise. And these are questions which really come from the dynamics less spatial temporal neuroscience point of view, which are key because we need to understand, for instance, the complexity matching. We haven't really understood the mechanisms yet. And that's, of course, the dynamic uh, complexity matching. Another question which I would find enormously of interest in, um, the relationship between time and space. When you ask me about the modeling, we really don't know. I think even in physics, it's not really clear how they're related to each other. Is space secondary to time? Uh, space and extension of time. You could, for instance, argue that um, if you have slower waves, they're spatially more expanded, versus involve more regions in the brain, versus faster waves, they're more local and less regions. That's basically a rule of thumb. It goes as a pure dynamic principle. Uh, Buzaki mentions that too in the 2003 paper. And that's, of course, very important also for your mental features, because for instance, in depression, you don't only have the slowness of time, but you also, also this experience of complete spatial restriction. You're like in a container. So many people describe that I'm in a dark tunnel. When I ask them if they can give me a picture, I mean, imagine you feel in a dark tunnel and there's no escape. I mean, how does it, what it is like? I mean, you don't want to even start imagining that. Yeah. So that's an extreme constriction of your subjective mental space. Yeah, Is that related to the unimodal, transmodal, sensory, higher-order topography, the gradient? I don't know. So these are the kind of questions I would be very interested in from Mm. the computational modeling
1: side. I guess more practically, because let's say when you this morning thought about the breathing experiment, you may have... Thought about conversations with patients where they had hyperventilation and anxiety. And you could kind of, your inspiration, I guess, came from all of that experience. And someone who maybe doesn't have that experience, but like, what resources can they look at to get a better grasp of the mental that isn't in a way so particular their own experience? Or I guess you could also look at one's own experience and then apply phenomenological methods. What do you think?
0: I would say that anything which is dynamically and topographically is somewhat related to the mental. So if you study mm. dynamic phenomena, and let's say uh, just guide by the dynamics itself. Yeah, so let's say if that person, okay, what questions comes here, what rise, what kind of computational formalism we need to capture this kind of dynamic phenomenon, she or he doesn't need to go into the, the mental, reaction, but then maybe show the model to me, and then I say, wow, this is really interesting, I could relate this to this mental stuff. Mm. Yeah, so, uh, that, that's what I would do. Often we just go into the pure neuronal realm, raise the question mm. and sort of my rule of some idea is that the better you go into the basic neuronal mechanism, the better you understand this time scale, the dynamic repertoire of the time scale, the more tighter you get to the mental without explicitly mm. mention. So it's always a going back and forth. It's an iterative process, but you need to have this dynamic component. That's really important Mm. because that's for me makes carries a link to the mental.
1: That makes sense. So final big question. Where is spatial temporal neuroscience in 10 years and what are the biggest challenges?
0: So first, I hope, um, it will be spread and it will be applied. I'm seriously thinking. So the most fun for me is, and I had it just this morning. People present me with a cognitive paradigm, analysis in the typical way, event-related potentials, some interesting results. And then I ask, OK, let's reanalyze it in the dynamic temporal continuous way. That's, for me, the most fun. And I think that's the most instructive to get people convinced. Look, there is something. Spatial temporal neuroscience doesn't contradict cognitive neuroscience. But it puts it into wider framework. So, cognitive neuroscience is for me a subset of the wider framework of spatial temporal neuroscience. Again, short look into the history of science. Einstein doesn't contradict Newton. Einstein provides a wider framework where we can see that Newton is a specific instance. That's science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, so it's about the framing, the scope, the range of the explanatory phenomena. Yeah. So that's for me. So I hope that many people will apply it, get convinced, and fortunately I get also more and more requests so that it really distributes and that people develop it and say, hey, not of you, a little bit too limited. Uh, this you need to consider, do this, apply it to different phenomena. So I would love to see that people apply it to affective question, emotion question, to cognitive, working memory, because obviously I cannot do everything by myself, and to consciousness, and that it provides fruitful. So that's the first thing But I hope that in 10 years and actually somebody asked me recently whether we shouldn't do some kind of sets in, of in music because my partner is a composer. They do these sort of master classes where they have five, let's say five singers, and each has to sing in front of the others and the teacher. And basically online they do some correction or you need to do this, you need to do the same here. So I could imagine not the usual conferences or seminars with lectures, but let's say people come with their paradigms, ideas for paradigms, for tasks or for analysis, and they say, look, maybe analyze this way in a special view. I think that's the most convincing and also for me a lot of fun because I get to know a lot of different people and different kinds of fields and I can learn. That's fantastic. Um, So I would hope that it really gets more accepted by scientific means. That the people are convinced say, well, this is really an interesting, fruitful approach. It gives me new insight. That's what my hope is. The second hope, and I'm trying to work on this so that, that we can translate some of this into clinical diagnostic and therapy for psychiatry. So I mentioned the depression often, the speed disturbance. We have other disorders, schizophrenia, temple imprecision, that we can use some of these spatial temple measures as biomarkers for differential diagnosis. And I also mentioned that for the anxiety, the breathing therapy, we also will establish music therapy, that we can use these spatial-temple tools, measures also for therapy. This is two points here from my side. First, if it works in differential diagnostic and therapy, there must be something right to the spatial temple framework. So it's a scientific validation. And the second thing, if you can help these people, if you know psychiatry, it's sort of trial and error. We have no biomarkers. When you go to cardiology, you get a bunch of tests, different diagnosis uh, tools. Nothing of that is in psychiatry. So diagnosis is trial and error. There's a joke. You have 20 psychiatrists, one patient, 30 diagnoses, <laughs> And that's a catastrophe the patients, and there's a lot of mental health suffering, so I hope that we can use some of these tools uh, to improve uh, diagnostic and therapy in these mental disorders and put psychiatry really into the 20th century, 21st century. Actually, last night I had a talk to Rome to develop a spatial temple psychotherapy that you develop, work with your own time scales to treat the people. So that's what my hope is, that uh, people pick this up and say, wow, here, we can work with this, not if you didn't consider this, and we can use some diagnostic and therapies." The third point, that some spatial-temple theories are developed, what we try to develop, spatial-temple theories of consciousness, temporal-spatial theory of consciousness, of the self, of mind-wandering, and so on and so on. Let's say, for instance, in the temporal-spatial theory, we have four mechanisms. And let's say that in 10 years, some clever people say not of four mechanism. It's 20. Slice it up. You need to slice it up. Your concepts are just umbrella concepts, way too unspecific. This is better. And I hope I can say, yeah, great. Do it. Develop five other mechanisms. That science, you slice it up. You don't lose the phenomenon. You slice it up. You become more and more detailed against the background that science look at the limbic system concept of the limbic system we hmm. barely use it anymore when i studied it used a lot now we know much more we don't need it anymore we know hippocampus and so on and so on same i hope with my special temple theory of mental features.
1: but i i was going to ask again on sort of the biggest challenges size do you do you have something in mind what what, what happens what is the most common critique
0: i think it's you mentioned it earlier it's the notions of time and space um because so that's one challenge that's more sort of a theoretical challenge because time and space okay external we have perception of external time and space but there's no inner time and space and then links that to the mental level so as i said for me this common currency idea so i said okay what do neuronal and mental activity share common currency but that's a question people don't ask anymore. Don't ask these days. They say, how can I map the mental onto the neuronal? But that's a completely different question. And if you map something, it always leaves a gap by default, because that's what mapping is about. So, and also the concept of representation. Yeah. I don't want to get into that. So I think that's a real issue. So of course, if somebody comes from the cognitive neuroscience and say we are map, They will not understand my question, how does neuronal activity transform into mental activity? Now, get another. I give you again an analogy, because I think that makes it more easier. Water. So here in Canada, water is, of course, everywhere, but in Canada particular, it's in three different states. It's in ice, fluid, and vapor or steam. Let's say, if you weren't knowing that it is all the same chemical slash H2O, You would say these are three different substances. However, once you know that it is water, then you ask the question, how does the ice transform into fluid and that into steam? That's your environmental context. Yeah? So then you can ask that question. And that's why I'm asking this question. How does neuronal activity transform into mental activity? Yeah? But for a cognitive question, this question is wrong. doesn't and you see this in most of the theories of consciousness is mapping. yeah Now you say not of you will never be able to show this kind of transformation. But that's a methodological question. yeah the question itself is an ontological issue. yeah your model, your ontological model which you apply, how you perceive the empirical data. And the common currency is one first answer to this question. How does neuronal activity transform into mental activity? Now you can argue, yeah, not of yours. This is just the very first step. And you're right. You don't really show the transform, but you show in order for something to transform into something else, you need, they must share something. That's a common currency idea. So it's a stepping stone. And I think that's a real thing. The other thing is, So that's sort of a theoretical challenge. An empirical challenge is really the data analysis. You background noise, so it's often cut out of the data. So, but noise, it's not necessarily technical noise. It's neuronal noise. It's a background. And you, let's say, I make a very concrete example. Trial to trial variability. When you do event related potential analysis in EEG in or MEG or even FMRI, you usually cut out the variations between trials. Trial to trial variability, because this is noisy, that uh, decreases the significance level, your p-value and everything. So this is noise is cut out of the data. However, the trial to variability gives you basically uh, the change in the amplitude, over the number of trials in response to the same stimulus. So where is that variation come? So the cognitive person would say, the traditional cognitive person would say this is pure noise. Cut out of the data because it impedes the amplitude of my event related potential slash ERP. But maybe it's an integral component of your neuronal activity. Then you ask, where is this trial-to-trial variability is coming from? Because it's strange, it's always the same stimulus, so the brain should always react the same. But that's not the case. That's why you have this variability in the amplitude, and you can measure that. It goes back to a paper by uh, at IL 2010. And that's probably related, carried over from the pre-stimulus what happens prior to the stimulus. So there you are, and that leads you into the dynamic. So it really depends on how you view your data analysis scope, if you just say, just on the event-related potential. And I think you need to widen many of these measures, which I mentioned, like the the correlation function, or limits complexity, or sample entropy. Many people don't know these measures. Yeah, they've never dealt with that. Okay, strange. Okay, I don't want to deal with that. I don't understand that. And then they perceive such a paper from their perspective. So I think we also need to change the way we process our data um, in the pre-processing. FMI, another example, and then I stop. Um, it's uh, the global signal. Um, the global signal is usually just noise global signal regression applied, and it changes the data. But however, we and others show this a lot of information in the global signal. We even want to use it for differential diagnostic of psychotic patients. It has been the overall level of the global signal has been related to the level or state of consciousness. So there we are, there's important information in there. So you cannot just cut it out of the data. Ideally, you present the same data with and without global signal regression, and then you know the impact of the global activity on the local regions. So there we are. But that's a change which I hope will take over time. And it's on my side and other people who want to pursue this special temple approach to show the specific benefits. And in a way, this critique is good because it helps me to sharpen the empirical experimental focus as painful as it is. But it's really important.
1: Yeah. It's the, the quote of someone's noise is another person's data. Yeah.
0: That's true. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, a good um, Yeah. Right. This was amazing. I couldn't have imagined a better first episode. Thank you for taking so much time. We've been recording for a long while.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for the good question and for giving me the opportunity. I appreciate it.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode. To find out when episodes are coming out, follow my Twitter account linked in the description. Until the next time.